Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer and your chief investigator of images. It has been a very exciting week for The Art Detective. We relaunched and we're trying to do something a little bit different this time round. Instead of getting funding through ads, we want to try and bring you the content that you want ad free and we're trying to do that through our Patreon site. Now, many, many of you have already got on board with this. Thank you so much. It means so much to all of us. It means that we can keep bringing you the best quality art history podcasts. So we've also added a few things. For $1 a month, Patreon supporters will be able to join the Facebook community. We'll be uploading videos on there. So for example, the talk that you're about to listen to is available as a video that you can watch. So you can get all of that for $1 a month, but also we've introduced for $5 a month ad-free podcasts. This is our attempt to free you from the incessant sales that come with so many podcasts. Do consider joining us. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash artdetective. Now, today's episode is incredibly exciting. I had the opportunity to interview Tracy Chevalier, the author of Girl with a Pearl Earring. That book made such an impact on me when it came out 20 years ago. So this was an anniversary experience. We were getting together to celebrate 20 years of Girl with a Pearl Earring. But what's so wonderful is Tracy's absolute endless enthusiasm for Vermeer, his art, his paintings. She brought those paintings to life in the most vivid way. And the book went on to inspire a film and went on to inspire lots of future art historians, myself included. But it's a chance for me to probe the actual artist at Vermeer himself and to find out a bit more about how Tracy wrote such a best-selling, brilliant novel. celebration we are gathered together for tonight 20th anniversary of this book now behind the scenes what you didn't see was that I 
I did say to Tracy to meet her and to be in her company, my teenage self is screaming. Aww. I am honored to be here on a stage with her today. Um, this book made a massive impact on me, so much so that I am now an art historian. Hurrah, so, yes. hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Um, it is powerful, and I'm sure people in the room feel this, this sense after 20 years of the impact it made then, and rereading it recently, the impact it still makes. Uh, if you have a passion for art, to read this book, it brings out that passion so thoroughly. Why did you write it 20 years ago? Uh, why did I write it? It's, um, a, it's a good story, actually. Uh, I fell in love with Vermeer when I was 19. Um, I, I visited my sister in her apartment in Boston and she had a poster of the painting up on the wall. I had never seen it and I just remember standing in front of it, walking straight over to it, standing and staring at it and, and just absorbing her, that look. Um, the, I always end up looking at it, you know, when I'm talking about it. Um, the blue and the yellow, so gorgeous. The the sculpted face, her her liquid eyes. I wondered. Um, I just thought she was beautiful, and I wondered what she was thinking. And uh, the next day, I went out and got a poster for myself. And I had that poster. I still have that poster. Um, many many years later, and I um, I kept it. I took it with me everywhere I went. I eventually ended up in England, and it always was on a wall somewhere where I lived. And years later. Um, in 1997, so 1995, I saw it in the flesh. There was a very um, a Vermeer exhibition at the Moritz House in The Hague, and um, and I saw her over the heads of a million people. So you know, uh, it was it was not the best viewing experience. But 18 months after that, in 1997, I um, I was lying in bed one day and I just was looking at her, and I suddenly thought, I wonder what Vermeer did to her to make her look like that. And it was the first time I'd ever thought that that look had anything to do with the painter. I always just thought, it's a girl. And um, now I suddenly thought, that's, that's, a, that's a reflection of a relationship. Wow. So w what's the relationship? Mm. And um, it's such a powerful look. You really don't know if she's happy or sad or how old she is or anything. And in fact, Nina has some slides later and one of them is of a girl, uh, another girl Vermeer painted. And when you see them side by side, you just think, wow, this one is just so incredible. And um, so I looked it up, I got right out of bed, I looked up in my exhibition catalog and found out that we know nothing about her, who she is and very little about Vermeer. And I thought, yes, so I can, I can write whatever I want. And, um, and so I did, I, it, but not whatever I want. No. We, we do know a little bit about Vermeer, not a lot, but I tried to be as, as, um, uh, as respectful of what we do know and of his paintings as I could. I mean, I believe that this is the most voted the most popular painting uh, in the Netherlands. It's, um, it's got something there, hasn't it? And I yeah. think that what you're capturing in there is a relationship, but, but there is something in terms of its, its structure. It's different. It's, it is Dutch yeah. golden age, but there's an intimacy. It is like a Mona Lisa of the North, isn't it? 
Yes, that's what they call it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think in a way it's it's better than the Mona Lisa because uh, you can you can see it better. I think that we've just been so blinded by the Mona Lisas for many years, and it's it's also quite a withdrawn painting, the Mona Lisa. And this is really in your face, so to speak. Yeah. And um, it it it's it's also brighter. It's literally brighter than the Mona Lisa. And sadly, you you also can't see the Mona Lisa very well in the Louvre, it's just an incredible zoo to try to get anywhere near her. Yeah. And there's a barrier and there's just flash guns off Dolphin going off. And, and whereas if you go on a quiet November Tuesday, a rainy Tuesday in November um, to the Moritz house in The Hague, you can spend a, you can be with her on your own. And there's just a little very tasteful um, semicircular wooden barrier that, but you can, you can still get that close and um, and she's really something. And, and I think what I really love about this painting is that there is no resolution. That you can look at it and look at it, and I've been looking at it for 30 years or however long, and I still don't really know what she's thinking. I still, still don't really know what her relationship with Vermeer is, even though I've written a whole book about it. I, and, and that, to me, is a, the, the master, a masterpiece is one that you keep coming back to because you get something out of it yeah. each time you look at it. And I was going to ask you if after 20 years you still loved her. I do. <laughs> I do still love her, luckily, because I get asked about her a lot. And, and also there's, there's images of her all through my study and uh, not just the old poster, but lots of stuff. So for tonight, because it's the 20th anniversary, I've, uh, there's so much merchandise, but tonight I've... I've put on my girl with a pearl earring oh. socks. Oh my goodness, go. we are sharing go. photos of those later. She has an actual pearl yeah, and earring. Yeah, there's a pearl on that there's side. There's a yeah. sewn-in yeah. pearl, people. That there is a stunning bit of merchandise. I bet you're jealous, yes. I am so jealous. But you can get girl with a pearl earring Miffy dolls and um, rubber ducks that are made in pearl. So it's, it's a little insane. Um, it, but yes, you can get her everywhere, and she is everywhere. The socks, the socks are driving me mad with jealousy. Um, <laughs> let's have a little think about why you picked Vermeer and who he is. Okay. Um, I'm not reading all this out to you, friends. It's just something that if you get distracted, please read facts. Uh, but there are facts up here, like his birth date, where he was from. Um, Vermeer, overlooked, essentially, for yeah. many centuries, for a couple, till, good couple of centuries. Till the till mid-19th century. century, yes, yes. Why him? Why, was there something about him that lured you in? Yeah, I think... Um, it was. It's the. Uh, it's not just Girl with Pearl Earring, but all of his paintings have a a quality that draws you in, but also holds you back at the same time, and that push and pull, um, it really is appealing. And uh, I find myself spending a lot of time in front of Vermeer paintings. And actually, if I stand in a room and watch the audience, people walking around, um, I notice that they spend more time in front of. Vermeers, because there's something very mysterious about them, and um, there's there's a kind of holding back. The he he places particularly women on their own in a corner of one room. He paints the same room over and over again. We'll see that in a minute, and he puts stuff in front of them: tables and chairs and tablecloths, uh, rugs. And, and and keeps them, which keeps them apart from us. So it's almost like, and some of the paintings, there's a there's a um, a curtain that's almost pulled back, like it's a theatrical event, and and the women are doing something 
so simple, like pouring milk or writing a letter, but he makes them into a, um, it, it makes it into a kind of theater, but a very quiet theater. And, um, and you're held back from it. And I, he's, he's upholding like domestic life as something that's very beautiful and mysterious. And I just love that about it. And you set up a really interesting comparison in the book as well, because you've got the crucifixion room, you've got the idea that these are Catholics surrounded by centuries of religious art, which, you know, it, there is a sense in which um, there is a comparative of, of work, a body of work whereby religious artists compare and contrast, compare and contrast. What Vermeer and the other Dutch artists are doing is a breakaway. It's saying, yeah. well, we won't use the saints, we won't use the Virgin in Christ. We'll look at domestic settings, but Everyday there is life. A, a sanctity in some of those scenes, isn't there, yeah. I suppose? Yeah. Well, I think in, in the 17th century uh, Holland, the, the rise of the middle class was affected um, affected painting, and particularly because um, Holland had just gone, come through this long war with Catholic Spain. So they moved away from Catholicism, and the Protestant uh, ethic was to, to turn to, was not to have paintings in churches, um, and so there was there was less and less painting of religious um, subjects, and the middle classes could afford paintings, and they said show us us in those paintings. I want to see me. I want to buy something that has, you know, my, my household up on the wall. And yeah. so, um, so they went to, uh, they, they started sh uh, painting markets and taverns and made sweeping and, and um, that's what you see. And, and I think Vermeer just kind of cranked it up and took it to an nth degree. Now we put this up here because when Nina sent me the PowerPoint slides, I said, that's nice, but that's not actually Vermeer. We know so little about Vermeer that we don't have a portrait of him. Yeah. <laughs> so the one before is not actually of him. I think it's of Carol Fabricius, and who is a, a colleague, a, a peer. But the one portrait that might be of him is an early painting of his. Um, is a, this is called the Procurus, and it's a genre painting. And um, the 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 uh, in Dutch painting, if you have somebody looking out, everybody else is looking somewhere else, but if they're looking out at you, that's often a self-portrait. Yeah. And so we think that the man on the left with the red hair and the hat and the, who's smiling is, might be the young Vermeer. Um, I found it, I mean, I believe, I, I think that it probably is, but um, it, it, that's not how I imagine him somehow. No, yeah. no. He looks, he looks sort of lurid and uh, garish and a bit sort of rakish as well in this, doesn't he? It's a, it's a yeah. of, of all his paintings too, it's to me the most overt. It's, there's, there's a beautiful sort of serenity in some of his images. This doesn't. Yeah to me have it well I think way. he was still training yeah and he um, this is 56 isn't it it's yes early. it's yeah. an early painting and um, there was then a leap um, if you take the next slide we can talk there's a change ah yes okay so we we've gone off onto he did do two landscapes these are the landscapes the view of Delft and the a little street both of them uh, view of Delft is in the Hague right across from girl with pearl earring in the same room it's such a wonderful room to stand in this is the room that this is the painting that Proust wrote about. The little yellow um, Albertine goes in front of it and swoons, and um, and the little street is at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And um, but he takes uh, there comes a point when um, his early stuff 
he moves away and he, something changes, something focuses and turns. If you take the next slide, that'll probably give us a better example. It's those two rooms, isn't it? Yeah. It's the interiority, he's gone inside. Something happens and um, one theory is that he learned to use a camera obscura. Right. Now he was probably friends with Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek. Yes, there, there you go. go. Anthony van Leeuwenhoek was the executor of Vermeer's will, and so they must have known each other in some form or another. They lived right around the corner. It's likely they were friends. And um, van Leeuwenhoek invented the microscope, and he had lots. He also had a camera obscura. And a camera obscura, when you look through it, it um, you use it in a darkened room, and it with one point of light, and it um, it intensifies the colors. It blurs some things, it brings other things into focus. And the theory is that Vermeer used it to look, either look, so there are some theories that he actually painted using it yeah. at the same time, which I find hard to imagine, but I could imagine him looking. For inspiration. And, and he probably borrowed it rather than owned it, didn't he? There's sort of debates about whether he actually owned the camera. Well, yeah. we know very little about him, but what we do know is when he died at the age of 43, when he had a, either a stroke or heart attack brought on by stress, because he was in debt, um, the, the, the will is still in the archives and um, attached to the will, he was in debt and so his executors went around the house and listed all the contents of his house to figure out how to pay off some of these debts. And they listed every saucer and pot and um, wife's clothes. And if he had had a camera obscura it would have been listed, so I don't think he. I don't think he did. But the idea that this technology is out there, the idea of photorealism coming through in his brushwork as well, the idea that, you know, in, it, we're just on the brink of, of yeah. photographic realism. But he's trying to give that to his patrons. He's saying, yes. "This is an image of your wife. This is an image of the woman you lust after, mm. and it could step out of the panel at you." That's really where the power of this sort of of very realistic art comes from, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and here, as I was saying before, if you, if you look at the one on the right, the curtain has an, the effect of of making this into some a tableau that we're not actually party to, but we're getting to have a peek at. So there's also this feeling of privileging the viewer to be able to see something that we're maybe not meant to see. Um, one of the reasons I love this painting on the right so much is that it's possibly the only other portrait we have of Vermeer. He's got his back to us. Yeah. It's perfect. And he's wearing red stockings. I'm not sure if it yes, comes so out. Yes, he is. It's just cut. at the bottom. Yes, but I've he's wearing red stockings. That. And I just think that he looks very jolly there. Um, <laughs> and, and I like his beautiful. top. All this was slashed. Yes, he, they on. often um, <laughs> used to wear kind of costumes to paint it. Or they yeah. paint cost people in costumes. So that's the girl with the pearl earring, the turban that she's wearing is not what women wore at the time. Yeah. It was to make her into a, um, a kind of uh, historic figure. But the domesticity is, uh, in a way, a, a way of getting into the, the real Delft, the real yeah. place. So Milkmaid, I suppose, is a better ac uh, representation of that. When we saw the landscapes, when we saw this setting, what comes through to me so strongly in your book is that you are taking us around this place, you are walking us through. And yeah. what was it about that place at that time that made you want to write a book about it? Well, it, it was the painting that came first, and I was, I, I inherited the period, but um, it suited me really well. I, I felt that um, 
when I went to Delft, I, I thought it's a compact city. It's um, it's it's a series of um, canals and bridges, and it's quite it's quite carefully laid out. And so is society. Uh, it was very um, the Dutch feeling at the time was one of house being house proud, mm. and um, of scrubbing the front stoop every morning. Yes, you slosh water out and scrub it, and that was what every housewife did or every maid did um, mm. to make the front stoop. And that just, I, I, I could really feel that. And this view of Delft, I just particularly love it with those two women talking down there. Yeah. And I think if you took them away, it just wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't have the power. And, and he knew, he just knew that they it needed to have two people connecting and, and, and gossiping there. But likewise, in Little Street, it's the people that bring that to life. It's yes. yeah, What you want to do is, is go into those scenes, go in further, discover the household. So yeah. it's almost a, a precursor, an album cover for yeah. the inner sleep. And, and I want to see what those two kids are doing. Yeah. The ones who are... On on the stu on the um, curb there, they must be playing some sort of game. But like the children you write about in yeah. the book, you know, yeah. you've you've thought those characters out of these artworks as well. And one of the what was so great about making this book was that I had to do a lot of research, and I, I read a lot, and I and I went to Holland, but I went to Delft, but I also just looked at a lot of paintings. And so if I was thinking about children playing outside, I would just study that painting very carefully, and then I'd look for a whole bunch of other Dutch paintings of children playing, or if Greet, the girl, has to go to the market, the meat market, I'd look up, I'd start looking at paintings of meat markets, and there were plenty, So, or, or the interiors of houses, and how the kitchen was set up, and all of that, it's, it's really well documented, given that it's not, um, there's no photography at that time, it was, it was pretty photographic, and that was what I, I found so helpful, and, and it, it just eased my way into the whole scene. Well, it's often, often what I say about being an art historian is that artworks are witnesses. If they could talk to you, yeah. they were there, they saw it, yeah. and we're the ones that have to listen to them. Um, and so, I mean, in, in these images, the reason I think I wanted to show these was mm. that you've got this space, and it's the, the space that you set a lot of the drama of the book yeah. within. These two rooms that he sets almost all of them in really at his high point, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, uh, Vermeer lived with his mother-in-law, um, yeah. the whole family did, and they eventually had 11 children um, and, and four more who died. So it was a huge household. And um, Vermeer, as far as we can work out, had a room on the first floor, north facing, because you want north light if you're an artist. and. Um, and it was it was almost always the light coming from the left. Yeah. And um, and that so that corner was painted over and over again. I um, got next. I've got. Yes. Yeah. So the same same room, same window. He changed the window panes. Sometimes he would change the floor a bit, but it was the same um, the same setup over and over. And and actually quite a lot of the same people in the same clothes. So if you see the, the woman playing on the left with the, with the yellow and black bodice and the ribbons in her hair, she's wearing the same yellow and black bodice. Now it could be the same woman, but it also could be a different woman. I've seen other women wearing that bodice and that was one of the clues. I had very few clues to go on when I was making up the story. But one of them was that um, we saw in the codicil that was attached to Vermeer's will, all of the clothes listed that his wife Katerina owned, and one was a blue housecoat, one was a yellow 
and white um, ermine-trimmed uh, coat, and one was a yellow and black bodice. And so we know that different women wore them. Oh, so he had his, we know that his yeah. models wore his wife's clothes, whether it was his wife or not, it was other women too. And that's what made me think when I looked at the painting of Girl with a Pearl Earring, I thought she's really young. Um, I think that she, she knows him well, and, but I don't think that she's his daughter because that's one of the, the ideas is that, and we could, we'll get to that when we get to that paint, the other two paintings, but I think that she knows him, so she, maybe she lives in the household, maybe she's his, his servant. And, um, and, and then I thought, okay, how did Vermeer paint these calm paintings when he had 11 children and a lot of servants? And I only had one kid when I was, um, actually I was pregnant when I was writing it, but I, I've, I knew what kids were like. I knew that it would, be, it would be busy, a busy household. So how did he do it? He must have compartmentalized. So he had his studio on the first floor and I think he probably said, nobody comes in here, not the wife, not the kids. The maid can come in here to clean, but that's it. Right. And uh, so that gets her into the room. And then when he sees her, he wants to paint her uh, and he, he has her wear, she's wearing very plain clothes a strange turban-y thing, but it's not like it's velvet or fur or satin, which some of these women are wearing. It's, uh, it's very plain. And that pearl earring, there's no way it could have been hers if she's a servant. So whose is it? And I thought, it's got to be Katerina's, his wife. And we also know that he painted slowly, very, very carefully. We only know of 35 or 36 paintings that he did. Not very many, very, you know, small output. And, um, and if he painted slowly, pretty girl in the room with him on her own uh, for months, painting this painting, um, and wearing his wife's earring. Then, you know, you put that all together, then there's the story right there. But what I think you did well is you didn't go down the rabbit hole of, oh, well, they're instantly having a crazed love affair. No. As other people who've written about this artist and model relationship have been tempted to do, yeah. there's a restraint there, and the restraint... Um, in a way, adds a flesh to the characters that is more intriguing. The fact that you know, there's a tension, but it's also almost a celebration or, or a recognition on Vermeer's part of what she can do. She can mix up paints. She can. You, she brings something to the process, doesn't she? I definitely didn't want this to be your standard love affair. Yeah. I wanted it to be a meeting of aesthetic minds. Yeah. And, um, and I, I took my cue from Vermeer himself because... I think the way he paints women is is reverential and um, and and there's also a real sense of less is more. So in the book, they only touch twice, and um, and that you know once on the hand and once on the ear, and um, and that's not very much. I, and yet people have said to me this is an incredibly sexy or sensual book, and and that's because of the restraint and the the, the incredible power of restraint and um, and and I've sort of lived by less is more ever since. And and in fact, when I when I started writing the or researching the book, I found out I was pregnant, and so I only had eight or nine months to eight months really to um, to research and write it. I wanted to get it done before the baby came. And and that's that's insanely crazy fast to do Eight anything from start to finish. But it, what it meant was, I said, okay, it's going to be short. It's going to be from one point of view. Um, it's going to be no, nothing tricksy. It's going to be linear telling. And um, 
and I'm gonna do less is more because that's what Vermeer's paintings are like. So I'm gonna do really spare prose. And I'm so glad that I went down that route because I, I just learned a lot from him um, about what how to tell a story in a, in a simple and stripped down way. Yeah, I think that's what that's certainly what comes across. And even the way that the there is a temptation to fill uh, the streets of Delft in the Golden Age, full of Bruegel-like, which just yes. loads of characters and loads yeah. of noise. But again, the the characters are quite minimal, and you can see the development in each one. And with Greet in particular, you know, there is a sense in which she uh, she's changed by her exposure yeah. to him, even being warned about being with him. Is that something you think would have happened between models and artists at the time? Yes, I think, um, I, I'm sure it, it probably happened. Mm. Um, and uh, because if you look at other paintings, not Vermeer paintings, but if you look at lots of the genre paintings of um, people in taverns, and there's a, there's a lot of rollicking sexual activity, so to speak, of, of and, and I could easily imagine that spilling over into more rollicking painting sessions and and so I don't I think that it um, it certainly could have happened but I just decided to go a different route with him I just it was the sense I got from his paintings and because we know so little about him mm. the only information we have about him is is our, in the archives. So his will, the times he got into debt, when he got married, his children, baptism records. Mm. Um, but other than that, there's nothing, there's no, there's no drawings by him mm. and there's no letters to him or from him, nothing. So we just have to look at his character from what comes out in the paintings. One of the interesting things actually that I did want to ask you about was this idea of patronage, because you make yeah. an interesting um, twist, if you like, on who the salacious one is right. in the relationship here. That Because at the beginning you said, you know, what you realized when you were looking at it is she's looking at Vermeer but she's also looking at you, at me, and at the patron who's ordered the picture, hasn't it? Yes, and the patron, um, Van Riven, was was Vermeer's painter, and in the end, he he had more paintings than anyone else, and when he after he died, he left them to his daughter and uh, son-in-law, and when the daughter died, I think the son-in-law, there was an, uh, a, a, an auction in 1696, and that's how we sort of know more or less how many paintings there are, what paintings there are, and, um, so Van Riven was a very important person in Vermeer's life because yeah. he would have provided him with, you know, he would have paid for the painting. So that was what kept them going. But he didn't paint very fast. So there, he was always a little bit in debt. Not always, but he he got into debt. And but he wanted it to, so we could assume, couldn't we, as, yeah. as indeed I think you've done brilliantly in the book, that she has to look inviting. She has yeah. to look alluring for the patron. Yeah. But it, actually what you're saying is, of course, the time spent painting it, it would be Vermeer that she was looking at. Yes, yes. She's not looking at the patron. She's no. not going to, no. And, and actually, it's a good point to look at these two. Okay, so we have a pretty poorly pixelated um, left-hand one, and, and that's like, it's, it's almost like we're not even giving her a chance. We're not there, even giving Nina. her a chance oh, she's to stand looking. up, yeah. But these two are painted around the same time. I think the one on the left is painted a little later, but only a year or two later. And um, I suspect that the left one is his daughter. Um, and when you look at them, the big difference, two big differences, one is that she's got her mouth open on the right and not on the left. And that was what made me think that uh, if, the, in Dutch painting at the time, if you had your mouth open, that was a somewhat of a sexual invitation. And, and I couldn't imagine Vermeer would ever do that with his daughter. 
Um, he would have her tight-lipped and smiling somewhat insipidly, as she does on the left. Yes, yeah, sweet and innocent. There's yeah. complete innocence there. Yeah. Um, and but then that's what's changed. The, the other thing is the angle of the, uh, the angle of the face, and that's really important because um, the girl on the left, you can see her, you, you can really tell what the shape of her face is like and what she looks like. Pearly, and, and you can see her hair, and you see how far back her hair forehead goes and stuff. On the, on the right, uh, the girl is, is turned in such a way that you can't quite see the shape of her face. Her nose is blending into her cheek. You can't even really see what the nose line is. And it's hard to tell what her, she, her hair is covered up. You have no idea what color it is. I have a hard time telling what color her eyes are. And it's, it's much more mysterious. And it, it also looks almost like she's just turned her head and is looking at you. Um, and, and this one, she looks much more on the left, like, much more like she's posing. She's doing this dutifully for her father, whereas this one has much more mystery to her. To me, they kind of, it's kind of the comparison of you know, my daughter's school photo and then my daughter posing on a night out, like, I'm yeah. going out. There's a definite knowingness <laughs> yeah. in girls. Yes. Yes. But at the same time, that knowingness is balanced with innocence, and that's what makes yes. it such a difficult contrast. Exactly. I think you're right about the lips and... Um, <laughs> I have to, of course, bring us off to, onto the lustrous oh, lips yes. of Scarlett Johansson, who plays it so beautifully. Um, there is that sequence where she is being asked to lick her lips in the book and yeah. again in the film. Um, and that is, I mean, I found that, given that the two characters only touch very briefly like this yeah. once, that was incredibly intense, actually. Yeah. Um, and so were you trying to get to the heart of the painting's suggestiveness then with yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and in fact, I remember on the, in the film, instead of licking her lips the way we would normally yeah. lick our lips, like, you know, that's what you do, she goes... Yeah, she goes, does, yeah. goes like that, and um, it's, it's much more... <laughs> There's no tongue. <laughs> no, it's not tongue, no. It's much more... Um uh, much more unusual and yeah. surprising and, and, and studied in a way. And I thought that was very clever. But very yeah, clever. it's, uh, yeah. And can I ask you about the film? Did you get involved? Did you... I had a great relationship with the film because I was, um, I was, a, I was a beginner. I was a novice. So they didn't really want me to have anything to do with writing it. They had a screenwriter, scriptwriter, but... Um, I met with a scriptwriter once or twice to answer some questions, and they let me read the first draft of the screenplay out of courtesy. And I, and I knew it was out of courtesy, um, and that was fine with me because I thought, I don't know how to make a film. And um, so I thought I'm going to, I read it, and I thought I'm going to choose my battles here, which is always a very good um, philosophy, way to be, yeah. philosophy. And I, I made a couple of comments and she answered them and, and that was fine. And then I just let them get on with it. And, um, and I, but I had such, I had a good relationship with the producers and they had me come on the set to watch. And I went twice cause I had so much fun. It was just, I'd never seen a film being made. I didn't realize that there'd be, you know, when you see two people talking on the screen, there's out of the sight lines, there's about 30 people with clipboards and boom mics and all this stuff. And then they say cut and they come running up and powder their faces and move their hair around. And I just loved it. I had, I had a blast watching it. And I, I feel very lucky because 
the producer was very passionate about the book and the director is very passionate about Dutch painting. And so it looked really beautiful. He he referenced a lot of paintings, different paintings. The cinematography was unbelievable. Yeah, was I was watching it back yeah. the other night and um, you know, it could take each still frame yeah. and it could be of a mirror, it could be a Dutch gold Yeah, it could painting. be Rembrandt, it could, it could be, be Rembrandt. I mean, yeah. And it's absolutely beautiful in the color palette and, and yeah. also the casting. I thought they were yeah. incredibly well cast. And actually for a film version of a book I thought very faithful they've stuck to yeah. a lot of your I think what they had to do which was what most films unfortunately have to do is cut out the subtleties of the subplots yeah. because they wanted to give more room for these two to be together yes it it meant that the other characters never really came into their own and they they did in the screenplay they did in the filming I saw scenes where they they filmed wonderful long dialogues, scenes between the, the wife and the patron, and, and then they used like two lines of it. Yeah. Um, and I, I understood why. I mean, the director said to me, we, we needed, you know, this can only really be about 100 minutes long, and we needed to give more space to Vermeer and Greet um, to develop their relationship. So that's how it goes. And, and I, I got that, and I think it was good that I was slightly arm's length, because it might have upset me more if I had been more True. into involved but I wasn't and so at the end when I saw it I I was um, very happy with it okay. because I I felt that it uh, I always think of it as the the film and the book are like are part of the same family they're not example exactly the same girl but they're like sisters or cousins so they're you you recognize the the influence oh that's a lovely way to think about it and and speaking of which I want to hear you read from your okay best-selling, <laughs> celebrating 20th anniversary book. And we've picked this scene to have up in the background because uh, this is the extract you're going to be reading a bit from, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so one of the things that um, I learned a lot from watching the film, and, um, and uh, you know, t 20 years on, I, I am my own worst critic, so I know a lot of the things that bug me about this book. And, um, and when I saw them filming it, and when the film came out, I thought, ah, he pierced her ear. That's how they did it. <laughs> I had this fiddly thing where she pierces her ear, and then when it comes time to paint, as you'll see, then he wants her to pierce the other ear, ear and she does it, and it's like, oh, Tracy, why didn't you learn? <laughs> you know, I could have simplified this whole thing just by having him pierce the ear when he when she sits down, but, but he doesn't. So it's, it's a little more complicated, but this scene isn't really complicated because it's kind of the, um, the climax of their relationship. Okay. And it's very short. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So he's been painting her for months and um, he reached around to the cupboard behind him, picked up an earring and held it out to me. I want you to put it in, I said. I had not thought I could ever be so bold. Nor had he. He raised his eyebrows and opened his mouth to speak, but did not say anything. He stepped up to my chair. My jaw tightened, but I managed to hold my head steady. He reached over and gently touched my earlobe. I gasped as if I'd been holding my breath underwater. He rubbed the swollen lobe between his thumb and ear, then pulled it taut. With his other hand, he inserted the earring wire in the hole and pushed it through. A pain like fire jolted through me and brought tears to my eyes. He did not remove his hand. His fingers brushed against my neck and along my jaw. He traced the side of my face up to my cheek, then blotted the tears that spilled from my eyes with his thumb. He ran his thumb over my lower lip. I licked it and tasted salt. I closed my eyes again then, and he removed his fingers. When I opened them again, he had gone back to his easel and taken up his palette. I sat in my chair and gazed at him over my shoulder. My ear was burning, the weight of the pearl pulling at the lobe. I could not think of anything but his fingers on my neck his thumb on my lips. He looked at me, but did not begin to paint. I wondered what he was thinking. Finally, he reached around him, behind him again. You must wear the other one as well, he declared, picking up the second earring and holding it out to me. Why? It can't be seen in the painting. You must wear both, he insisted. It is a farce to wear only one. But my other ear is not pierced. Then you must tend to it. He continued to hold it out. I reached over and took it. I did it for him. I got out my needle and clove oil and pierced my other ear. I did not cry or faint or make a sound. Then I sat all morning and he painted the earring he could see and I felt stinging like fire in my other ear, the pearl he could not see. Wow. Wow. So less is, is more, is more, is more, is more. That was, uh, yes, deeply sensual, deeply suggestive, <laughs> but also uh, really beautifully written, very emotive writing. Um, yeah. 
I don't think it's hearing passages like that back that make me realize why we all fell in love with the book when we did 20 years ago and why we're all still so in love with it now it is a masterpiece like the piece you've written about and I'm just so grateful that you've come to talk to us all about it tonight thank you, thank you. and we're going to leave some time for questions but for now can we just all thank Tracy Chevalier thank you, thank you. Thank you. So I'd be happy to answer questions. And I think if we bring the lights up a little bit, I'll be able to see you. So I think that we have, do we have microphones? I think we do. Here, um, so if you have a question about anything really, um, and it can be to Nina too, it doesn't have to just be to me. Um, raise your hand and we'll bring a microphone to you. Oh, there's a hand. Yes, there's a hand, yeah. Hi there and thanks for that. Um, just a, a quick question. If you hold it up closer. Like here? There we go. Uh, how did you choose her name? How did I choose her name? Yeah. Good question. Another good story. Um, I've been collecting them over the years. Two, two name stories. Um, when I do research for the book, books, I, I, I research, I take notes. I don't use a computer. I don't use a laptop at the library or whatever. I write it in a notebook. And at the back of the page, of the notebook, I have a names page, and I put family names, and I put sir, uh, Chris, you know, uh, first names, first names and last names. I make a list as I'm researching, just in case I need a name. So I was writing down all of these Dutch women's names, and I came across, I can't remember where it was, but I came across Greet, and I thought, that's what I want. Something short and simple, Greet. And it's short for Marguerite, but I just thought, greet, that's perfect. So I chose that. And then um, a year after the book came out, I, uh, I was at a reading and somebody said to me, that was really smart choosing greet. And I said, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, why smart? And they said, well, you know, Marguerite. And I said, yes, it is short for Marguerite. And they said, yes, well, Margarita in, in Greek means pearl. Wow, and I was like, yeah. oh yeah, of course, of course. Yes, thank you very much. And, um, uh, but I just didn't, I didn't know. I, I should have known and I didn't know. And, um, so that was amazing. And then the other amazing story of, um, of names is that um, the painting we saw earlier of the woman um, pouring milk uh, is the other, probably the other servant in Vermeer's household. And when I was doing, um, I, I named her, when I started writing it, I named her, um, one of the names in the back of my notebook was Annika. So I named her Annika. I thought that's a good, good other servant name. And then when I, I found, um, I started reading this biography I hadn't meant, meant to get, which was about all the people in Vermeer's life. And um, the only people they really know are the, the problems. So Vermeer had, Vermeer's mother, um, Vermeer's mother-in-law had a very difficult brother and he came and started trying to beat up, or son, actually Katerina's brother, came and started trying to beat somebody up and the other servant came and broke it up. And um, so they named her in the court document and her name was Tanika. 
And I hadn't even ever heard of Tanika, but I'd already named her Annika. So I just added a T and I thought, I'm on to something here. So it felt like I was in the right direction. You were tapping into some liminal messaging. I was, I was. But to me, names are really, really important. I have to get them right. Um, So that was an instance where I felt, two instances where I I felt like I got them right. Other questions? Oh, yes, in the front row here. Where did you buy your socks? <laughs> where, <laughs> where did I buy the socks? Two, I have two pairs of them. Two friends gave them to me, um, two different sets of friends, one in the States and then one got them here. So I think if you go online and just put Girl the Pearl Earring socks, you'll probably be able to get them They're all They're going to be over. sold out by midnight. <laughs> I think the VNA shop is going, oh, let's, yeah. have, let's bring them in. Uh, <laughs> Great any, question. Any other questions? Yes, front. When you uh, started researching uh, in Delft, was it complicated to get permission to consult the, these precious documents about the will and what was left behind. Was, that, was there much rigmarole in, in accessing? There was no rigmarole whatsoever because I didn't consult the originals. I, um, I, don't read, I don't speak Dutch and I don't read old Dutch, which would have been very difficult. But luckily someone else, uh, John Monteus wrote an amazing biography about um, who he dug for 17 years through all of the archives and he got out every little nugget of information about Vermeer and then he wrote about it in in his biography. And I used that, um, I bow down before him because he did all the work so that I didn't have to, because otherwise I would have had to spend years learning Dutch and years, and it's not just that, like I, I speak French, but um, French uh, papers from 17th century are written in a, in a completely a different French and a different, and the, the, the um, handwriting, it's, you know, you could just spend, that's what academics do. And so I use the academics work. And, and in fact, there was a, I can still visualize it, there was a page, two pages of the, um, the will of all of the stuff listed in his house that was in Monteus's biography, and I photocopied it and I taped it to the wall so that I could just see it all the time, and that was incredibly useful. But no, I always and in the back of my books, I always put in the acknowledgments the the work um, the the works the works that I have used, and also acknowledge the people who I've I've. I've stolen from who have done so much work for me and have helped me so much. But it's not stealing from in a way because in, it, academics who are extremely close to this material, who do all the paleological research and all the archival research, cannot necessarily see a picture or a narrative coming together in the sense that, that you were able to, to step back and get a sense of who this person was and what the story could be. So it's it's the relationship between yes, the archivist and, the, and the fiction writer. Yeah. When I was... Um, in my early 30s, I started researching the Chevalier family background, and we are apparently uh, Huguenots from the Cévennes who fled after the massacre of Saint Bartholomew to Switzerland, which is where my father was born in Moutier. And um, when I was there, looking for uh, the through the Chevalier, trying to put together a family tree, um, 
I uh, there was a chapter in a in a book about Moutier that was that talked about the Chevaliers who first came, and the archivist there said, "Oh, I'll show you the first me there, there there were um, militia records, and I'll show you the mention of your ancestor, um, Anton Chevalier, um, written in the uh, in 1574." So he he got it out and um, and he said, "See there," and I. And I couldn't read it because it was just written in this way, and it was like it didn't say chevalier; it said cavalier or something. And and it was this bizarre French, and um, and very bizarre handwriting. So he made a photocopy of me uh, for me of the book of the page, and I still have it. And I look at it sometimes, and I still can't find it on the page now, even though I know it's there. I think is it that one or that one? So there's a real art to learning not just the language, the old language, but also learning how to decipher the handwriting. Mm, mm, mm. There's a question there? Yeah. Tracy, I'm interested in your creative writing process, particularly within an eight month window. Were you very structured in your day and week or how did you actually pull together both the research and the creative um, output. I'm going to repeat that because I think that not everybody heard because it, 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 you want to know about my creative process and how I do it. The Just structure of your writing within a constraint of eight months. Of eight months. Oh, that book. Okay, yes. Well, you know, there's nothing like a biological deadline. Um, <laughs> and, and that actually, I think my, my um, publisher sort of wish I had had more kids. I only had one child and they thought, yeah, if she had had another one, then there'd be another deadline. And um, but. I, I did literally found out I was pregnant on the day I started research. And I, I think I just thought, oh, this is gonna be hard to do. I had written one novel, I knew how hard it was, and I thought this is gonna be hard to do after, once I have a baby. So if I can possibly get this written, that was why I made all those choices to, to cut it down. So I just, um, I wrote, I, I researched and wrote it in a kind of, dream. I wish I could tell you um, that I did it systematically, but you'll laugh like the, the, the research notebook for Girl with a Pearl Earring is the sparsest notebook ever. I don't know what happened to me, but I hardly took any notes. I took some, but not many. And now I have copious notes for, for all of my books. But that one, it was just, I, I just, um, because there's not that much known about Vermeer, I think what I did, I started with the books that I had, which was an exhibition catalog, I looked at all the paintings really carefully, I read about them. Then I read everything I could about Vermeer. Um, and then I read everything, I started reading everything I could about Dutch society. So you go in these concentric circles out in terms of the research. You start with the specific and then you get more and more general. Um, and, I, and I wrote about probably about a quarter, a third of it. And then I went to Delft. Um, because sometimes you don't know the questions you're gonna have until you have started writing. And um, and I went to Delft and I only spent four days there, but it's a small place and I, I um, just absorbed it. I absorbed the feeling. And I also just looked at Dutch paintings every day, all the time, um, whether I was in Delft or, or at home. And and then other than that, it's um, you, you have to treat writing a little bit like a job and um, um, and my editor's here, so I have to be really careful what I say. So I write every day, every single day. No, I write every, um, when I'm in the writing phase, 
the really important thing about a book is that when you're reading it, you want to feel like the writer is just ahead of you writing it. And it has this flow, like you're in sync with the writer. And in order to get that as the writer, once you start a book, you really have to keep going. So it doesn't do much good to start it and then leave it for a couple of months. You, so, so for me, it's a real commitment when I think, okay, I'm going to start writing. It's like, I'm going to start writing. It's like a marathon. I know I can't stop until I get to the finish line. Um, and, you know, some days are better than others. But I try when I am when I'm, have a writing day to write a thousand words, which is like three or four pages. And if I hit that, I feel good. If I don't hit it, I feel bad, basically. If I hit more than that, I feel like, um, well, you know this because you feel really virtuous. Like I've written 1,200 words instead of a thousand. And I know this sounds incredibly uncreative. But it's how you have to do it because if you just write when you're when you're inspired, you'll never get it done. And I've, I've had other authors chastise me for saying I must hit my thousand because I'm the same. I'm a thousand important. word a dayer, but I really believe in it. You set yourself yeah. a target. I try not to feel disappointed if I haven't done it, but it yeah. is a marathon, and you just when you're in, in, you have to finish the book. It is just a case of getting the book out. Yeah, purging it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's also. Um, a thousand words sounds like it's it's. Uh, I've just chosen it out of the air, but it's but I haven't. Um, most scenes, most of the scenes I write are three or four thousand words long. So I am in a scene for at least three or four days, and every day I feel a little bit different. So it sounds a little different. So I need three or four days to. I, I liken it to painting a wall. You don't just do that. <laughs> And that, you, you kind of go at it this angle and that angle with your roller. And, and that's what I do for a few days. And then the scene starts to get texture and life and because I'm looking at it differently for a few days. So a thousand words feels really good. Mm, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> We've probably got time for one more question. Um, is that right? One more? Yep, stuff? there's yeah, the lady here with the glasses. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Um, are there any other paintings with which you felt even remotely the same kind of connection? Oh, uh, great question. <laughs> not quite the connection as with this, but um, I have felt the mood. Um, there's a really wonderful painter, a Danish painter called who. Yeah, Hammershoy, um, who who was painted at the beginning of the 20th century, and he he must have studied Vermeer because there's a lot of women on their own in rooms, and they are really mm. and um, the other. Um, I'm I'm also a really big fan of Cezanne, and and I think that's because of the his color palette does something to me, yeah. and it's there's just there's just something so true about those colors of, of, of the apples or, or the men playing cards or whatever, or the landscapes, that it's like, yes, that blue, yes, that orange. I completely understand what you're doing. I feel like he and I have a mind meld in terms of the colors he uses. So I would say Cezanne, yes. How interesting, because that's really interesting that you see the Cezanne. I've always seen the relationship color-wise between Girl with the Pearl Earring and Suzanne's palette. So isn't that interesting oh. that you've got a sort of taste place palette? My, my absolute week at the knees one is Albrecht Dürer's self-portrait, just because I really, really fancy oh. him. Um, oh, yes, okay. <laughs> sad but true. 
but no, those paintings that make you really connect. I mean, yeah. there was something with that painting, and and it is a delight to hear that after twenty years, you're not. <laughs> you haven't felt the need As you've seen, I can them. talk for England. I can bore for England about Girl of Pearl Earring, about Vermeer. I still love I still love looking at the painting and I still love looking at Vermeer paintings and um and I think I'll always be like that. Fantastic. Yeah. Tracy, you've inspired me, you've inspired everybody in this room. What an honor and a privilege, I think, to for all of us to be here. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, Tracy will be signing thank her books you. after the talk, but thank you. Thank you. So If you'd like to support the podcast and get better quality, loads of extras, then do please support us by going to our Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash artdetective. Every single penny that you give to us will go into making better podcasts in the future. Next week, we're going behind the scenes at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, where I'll be talking to Pieta Greaves and Jenny Butterworth about the remaking of the Staffordshire Horde helmet. It was an extraordinary jigsaw puzzle that's taken nearly 10 years, but it is possibly one of the most important Anglo-Saxon discoveries. So do join me in the next podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.